All right, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17 today. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. He left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. He drove them from the tribunal. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Well, if you think about the conventional wisdom of how you would influence people and make change in the world, uh, the most logical thing that you would do is you would influence the most powerful people. And if you influence the most powerful people, then maybe you can influence other aspects of society. This is something that's even kind of gone into how people do ministry oftentimes. When you think about doing ministry, sometimes people talk about you have to reach the leaders, you have to reach the authorities, you have to reach people who have influence and power. I remember reading youth ministry books, and in youth ministry books they would you know, kind of talk about reaching the cool kids. If you reach the cool kids, then you'll reach everybody else, the people who are influencers. In the 1980s, 1990s, there was a movement in the United States that kind of continues a little bit today called the movement of the religious right. And the movement of the religious right was essentially about getting the right people in politics and having the right Christian policies passed uh, so that society would kind of be redeemed through the process uh, of being transformed politically. In other words, there would be kind of this kind of trickle-down spirituality that if you influence the top, the highest levels of society, that would influence the lower levels, and then there would be revival in the country. Tim LaHaye, one of the leaders of the movement, once said this. He said, the only way to have a genuine spiritual revival is to have legislative reform. It's trickle-down spirituality. You reach the people in power, you reach the people under them. But there's a few problems with this. First, 
the movement of the religious right kind of won, but they also lost. There were many Christians who were put into places of power, but the revival that they hoped for never came. And now we're living in this post-Christian reality where the pendulum has swung so far the other way. And even if it did, even if they did accomplish what they wanted to accomplish, maybe that's not the best goal that we should be aiming towards. You see, usually when the church and state go together or are too closely together, the result is disastrous. You look at the Crusades, for example, where the church was basically in charge of the government and the popes were the ones who were often directing and leading these crusades. C.S. Lewis once said this, Theocracy is the worst of all possible governments. All political power is at best a necessary evil. But it is least evil when its sanctions are the most modest and commonplace, when it claims no more than to be useful or convenient, and sets itself strictly limited objectives. Any transcendental or spiritual or even anything very strongly ethical in its pretensions is dangerous and encourages it to meddle with our private lives. So the supposed dream of the Christian right that church and state would almost be one is not something that we should necessarily be aiming for. G.K. Chesterton said this, the coziness between the church and state is good for the state, bad for the church. Russell Moore writes this, conservative evangelicals don't want government support for our faith because we believe God created all consciousness free and a state-coerced act of worship isn't acceptable to God. Moreover, we believe the gospel isn't in need of state endorsement or assistance. Wall Street may need government bailouts, but the Damascus Road never does. Charles Colson says this, Many Christians, like most of the populace, believe the political structures can cure all of our ills. The fact is, however, that the government by its very nature is limited in what it can accomplish. What it, does best, what it does best is perpetuate its own power and bolster its own bureaucracy. Now, in saying that, I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't be involved in politics and we shouldn't pray that we have good, strong Christian leaders in our government. But it's clear that the goals of the Christian right, that the church and state would become one, that if you put Christians in power, then it's going to trickle down and then there's going to be a revival we know that's false. You look at Billy Graham, the evangelist, who spent a good deal of time investing in people of power. He was a counselor to 12 different presidents. He had a tremendous amount of influence on these men, but yet while he was in this position of prominence, he started to compromise his faith, even ever so slightly. It was seen especially in his relationship with Richard Nixon where Richard Nixon actually uh, had Billy Graham involved in some of his political uh, movements and used him in that way. Near his 92nd birthday, we shared a couple of his regrets in, in the past. But one regret he has is he says, I also would have steered clear of politics. I'm grateful for the opportunities God gave me to minister to people in high places, people in power, have spiritual and personal needs like everyone else, and often they have no one to talk to. But looking back, I know I sometimes cross the line, and I wouldn't do that now. 
So trickle-down spirituality doesn't work, and when the church is too much aligned with the state, even if that were possible, the church loses its prophetic voice, and the church can no longer check the state. The church can no longer speak against evil but because the church is the state. But not only that, not only is it not effective, but as we look at the Scriptures, this isn't the way that Jesus worked. Jesus didn't go to Caesar and proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand. He didn't go primarily to the people of authority, the people of power. He went and spoke to the outcasts, the poor, the broken, the people that society looked down upon. And of course, he preached the kingdom of God to everyone. He wasn't going to not preach to the authorities, but his main focus was on the people who were broken, the people who were outcasts passage that we're looking at today, Paul enters into the city of Corinth, and Corinth was a very prosperous and important city in Greece. It was an important trade route, and it was known for its sinful, extravagant living. One scholar describes it as the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Paul encounters some success, but he also encounters a lot of opposition, and then the Jews eventually bring Paul to the proconsul Galileo. And they say, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to law. And Galileo says, hold on a second. And he says this, he says, if there were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. He says, I refuse to be a judge of these things. See, in essence, what the Jews are saying is that Paul is an idolater. Paul is not worshiping God as he should be worshiping God. And Galileo's response is essentially, who cares? I, I don't care. If he was some great lawdoer, if he was stirring up division, then I would intervene here. But I don't care what he believes. I don't care how he worships. And so he chooses not to be involved. And in doing this, in essence, he kind of sets out what a the, the true state or what a, a true functioning government should be like, to, uh, that it punishes those who do evil, rewards those who does good, do good, and upholds the social order. So Galileo says, I'm not going to be involved. As human beings, we live under the authority of a government, and we're always living in two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. The two kingdoms are separate, but sometimes they overlap. There's points of connections. As Christians, we pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, but as Christians, we also know that that's not going to happen until the king comes back, until Christ returns. Scholar Daryl Bach sums it up this way. He says about this passage, in some, this is another glimpse of Paul engaged in mission, making clear that Christianity is not a threat to the state. For it operates at a level of human promise, touching areas that a government cannot possibly meet. He says, in a secular world where life is often viewed in terms of things and politics, this is an important reminder. There are issues of the heart that the government uh, that, that cannot be touched by legislation or governmental programs. Praise the Lord that there are issues of the heart that the government cannot touch. I mean, we could have the best leadership in power imaginable, Christians who follow after God, but that doesn't mean that people's hearts are going to be changed. The White House cannot change people's hearts. Only God can change people's hearts. We live in very strange and unusual times. Our political system is in upheaval, 
you know, we look forward to the coming election, and as we look to this election, the two political parties want to take the country in very different directions. One wants to take the country this way, the other wants to take it that way, and sometimes it can be kind of confusing, and it can be kind of, feel kind of hopeless. We don't know what's going to happen in November. And whether or not your candidate wins or loses, we need to remember one thing. That Jesus is still on the throne. We need to remember that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God and second citizens of the United States. I think sometimes we reverse that. Sometimes it's like we're citizens of the United States and then we're citizens of the kingdom of God. Russell Moore continues and says this, The problem was that Christian values were always more popular in American culture than the Christian gospel. That's why one could speak of God and country with great reception in almost any era of the nation's history, but would create cultural distance as soon as one mentions Christ and Him crucified. God was always welcome in American culture. He was, after all, the deity whose job it was to bless America. The God who must be approached through the mediation of the blood of Christ, however, was much more difficult to set to patriotic music or to amen in a prayer at the Rotary Club. So we're citizens first of the kingdom of God, secondly of our country. But then how do we live as citizens of the kingdom of God, living in the country that we do? I think that we see some encouragement that God gives Paul here that can be an encouragement to us. God appears to Paul in a vision and he says to him, first of all, keep preaching. Don't give up. I think that's a helpful thing for us today. We can't give up. We can't give in. We need to keep preaching the gospel, keep sharing with those around us, even if we face opposition and persecution. But then God gives Paul two promises. The first promises, promise that he gives him is he says, I will be with you. Keep preaching the message, I'll be with you. It's the same promise that Jesus gives us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and then the promise, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We don't walk this journey alone. Jesus promises to go before us, to be with us every step of the way. When we are weak, He is strong. It's not our work primarily, it's His work. His presence will lead us and sustain us when we are weak. So that's the first promise that God gives Paul. The second promise that God gives Paul is He tells them that no one will attack you or harm you. Now this was a very specific promise. I don't think this applies to us the same way it applied to Paul. And it only applied to Paul in Corinth. There were other cities that he went to where he faced intense persecution, and people did harm him. He was thrown in prison, he was beaten, faced a number of difficulties for the cause of Christ, but it was in this specific location that God gave him this promise, no one's going to attack you, no one's going to harm you. Yet while we're not given that exact promise today, we're not promised that we won't be persecuted, we're not promised that our bodies will not be harmed, that our emotions will not be uh, saddened, we are promised that there's nothing that we'll face that will destroy our souls. That nothing can take away from us the love of Christ that's been poured out on the cross. So God tells Paul that 
No one will attack you or harm you. And the reason that he tells Paul that no one attack, will attack you or harm you, harm you is he says, because I have many people in this city. As believers living in the United States, sometimes we feel like we don't have anybody with us. We know as Christians that Christianity is declining in the United States. It's COVID-19 crisis has accelerated that. Uh, I looked, I was watching a webinar a week and a half or so ago, and they were suggesting that two years from now, uh, there'll be about 20% less people in churches than before COVID-19. And for some churches, it's even higher right now. You know, and you think about even before COVID-19, uh, church attendance was declining in the United States. And you look around at what's happening, and it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to feel like we're alone. And sometimes maybe we feel like Elijah when he was on the run from Jezebel in 1 Kings 19, verse 10, where Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Sometimes maybe we feel like we're all alone. Maybe we're the only person who's a believer in our workplace. Maybe we're the only believer in our family. We feel like we're doing this journey alone. But maybe it's because we're so focused on our own cultural climate. I think it's almost like, you know, today is a nice, bright, sunny day. So say you go home, you go into your house, you close all the blinds, turn all of the lights off, and then you complain and say, hey, it's so dark. Well, if only you opened up the blinds, you'd be able to see the light. And I think the same thing is true for us as believers. If we would open up the windows to see what's going on, we'd realize Christianity is not in decline. It's one thing that it might surprise you, it surprised me. Some missions experts suggest that by 2050, there will be more Christians on the planet than at any other time in history. And that the percentage of Christians will be the highest that it's ever been in history. Is that surprising to you? I know it was surprising to me. According to a journal article entitled World Christianity and Mission 2020, an ongoing shift to the global south, it says the statistical high point of Christianity was in 1900, the highest point, highest percentage of Christians 34.5% of the world's population was one form of Christian or another. By 2000, Christians had dropped to 32.4%, and then by 2015 had dropped further to a low point of 32.2%. They say our projections for 2020 show a slight increase, with a larger increase by 2050 to 35% of the world's population. See, I, I was really surprised by these statistics, but I think that maybe the reason I was surprised, and if you were surprised, maybe the reason you were surprised, is because I think that we maybe mistake what the sound of heaven sounds like. What do you imagine that heaven sounds like? I don't know, if I thought about what heaven sounds like, maybe it might be something like this.
So to me, that's maybe something like what heaven would sound like. Well, it's your lucky day. You're, it's a good thing you came to church today because uh, I have the unlisted phone number for heaven. And I'm going to call heaven today. And we're going to get to listen in for just a moment on what might be happening in heaven. In case you were wondering, this is a joke. So let's call in. Let's listen to what might be happening in heaven right now. Okay, that's Chinese. So let me, let's go check another part of heaven, see what might be going on. Okay, that's Russian. Let's check another part. think about heaven, we think about heaven being filled with Americans and English-speaking people, but heaven's not going to be filled with Americans. If we get to see heaven, if heaven was this sanctuary here, there'd be like one pew of American English speakers, and there'd be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation reaching out and praying to God. Just because we don't see it here doesn't mean that it's not happening throughout the world. Just because Christianity is declining here doesn't mean it's declining everywhere. And this explains why experts can suggest that Christianity might reach an all-time high in the next 30 years. According to the same article that I just read a second ago, the increase has a simple explanation. The decline of Christianity in the global north is now being outpaced by the rise of Christianity in the global south. Africa, Asia, Latin America, Oceania. Christians in sub-Saharan Africa generally have high birth rights. And people from other religions continue to convert to Christianity in China, India, Cambodia, Mongolia, and elsewhere throughout Asia. If you look at the chart that we have on the screen here, it's a little bit hard to see the bottom. But on the bottom, uh, it has uh, the days from 1900 to 2100. And if you look at this chart, you can see in 1900, it was almost 68% of Christians came from Europe. And now it looks like it's, by 2100, it's estimated to be less than 10%. But the opposite's happening for Africa. As Africa goes up from uh, having virtually no Christians in 1900 to being, est they're estimating that by 2100, there'll be over 50% of the global church will be from Africa. According to the World Christian Encyclopedia, in 1900, there were only 18% of all Christians living in the global south, 82% living in the global north. By 2020, two-thirds of all Christians were in the global south, with only one-third in the global north. By 2050, they anticipate that 77% of all Christians will live in the global south. So we're not alone. 
Christianity is not failing. All we need to do is open up the windows to the world and see that there is light, that people are coming to faith in Christ. Millions and millions of people are coming to know Him. So let's come full circle. Let's bring this all together. I know we've gone in a lot of different directions today. But this dream of a Christian America is shattered. The dream of Christians having a place of cultural prominence where the church and state are wed is, is over. Trickle-down spirituality is dead, doesn't work anyways. That's not necessarily all bad. As Christians, we're called to continue to share the gospel with those around us. And as Christians, we have the assurance that God will be with us, that God will assure that nothing destroys our souls. And also, we have the encouragement that there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the world worshiping the name of Jesus Christ. It's the question I have, what if we stop lamenting and trying to change what's happening at the highest levels of society? It started to change what's happening in our own hearts. What if we, instead of trying to influence culture in that way, what if we allowed the Holy Spirit to flow up through us, to transform us, and in turn transform those around us, and, and transform society from the ground up? What if just a few Christians would allow God to transform their hearts, transform their families? Philip Yancey shares about a story when he was going to uh, India two weeks before the 2008 presidential, or after the presidential election. He met a scholar who said to him, you Americans are celebrating the election of a black man after only 250 years of slavery. We are still waiting for liberation after 4,000 years of living under caste. The Dalat Freedom Network works on behalf of 160 million Dalits, formerly known as untouchables. They're nominally Hindu, but are not allowed in Hindu temples, and in recent years have turned to other religions, including Christianity. Just one step above them are the other backward castes, as they're called, which comprise more than half of India's population of 600 million. An organization called Truth Seekers spearheads their efforts on their behalf. Activists coming out of these castes see Hinduism as oppressive, designed to keep them in their place. But any, any sign of division or agitation prompts a, a violent response from fundamentalist Hindus. Joseph D'Souza, president of the All India Christian Council, said this, Early missionaries directed their efforts toward the Brahmins, the upper castes, hoping the liberating message of the gospel would trickle down to the oppressed. It didn't happen. Now we are working from the bottom up. Yancey says this, as he described the history of Christianity in India, I could not help but think of parallels in my own country. Some evangelicals are wringing their hands over losing access to the corridors of power. Maybe it's time for us to, to work from the bottom up. Revival will not happen by getting the right people, the right policies in place. Now I pray that Christian people would be involved in politics. I pray that the things of God would be advanced in our country. Those are good things and good for our country, and I pray that those things will happen. But they're not going to change people's hearts. Only God's Holy Spirit can change people's hearts. And only we can be a catalyst of His Holy Spirit as we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us and share His love 
with those around us. See, the Holy Spirit can move through all aspects of society, but it starts with Him moving in our own hearts. Many, many years ago, uh, perhaps thousands or however long ago, it was said that the Amazon River flowed from east to west. And uh, it, it would empty out into the ocean, and then sometime ages passed, something happened. And the river changed course. Now, for a long time, scientists were baffled why this happened. It was, you know, an enormous change. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of water going one direction, and then all of a sudden they change and go another direction. They theorized that maybe it was something to do with the movement of the continents or uh, some grand thing that happened. But in 2014, after doing further research, they came up with a breakthrough, and they now believe it was a very simple thing that caused this. Erosion. That over time, as the water was flowing through this river, sediment built up at the end of the, of the river. And it eventually got so high that the river was no longer able to flow in that direction. And it switched and changed directions. Now think about that and you think about our culture. Our culture is certainly going in a, in a direction that's opposed to Christ today. But what if one Christian after another after another would allow God's Holy Spirit to transform their hearts, to be agents of the kingdom? Who knows? Maybe years from now that course would change. Maybe that course would reverse. You know, and I, I think about our culture and the way things are head, heading, and sometimes it feels kind of hopeless. It seems like th things could never change. Maybe they, maybe they won't until Christ returns. But they could. Yeah, and you look at other countries throughout the world that just relative, a relatively short time ago, we were sending missionaries there because there was virtually no gospel presence. And now those countries are sending missionaries to us. Just in a generation. Just in 50, 100 years. And you think about that, God could change our country. If He could change those countries, He could change our country. Let's pray that He does that. And as Christians, let's allow God's Spirit to move in our hearts so that He might flow to those around us and bring change from the bottom up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You that You are the King. You are on Your throne no matter what happens in the affairs of men. We thank you that you have preserved for yourself a remnant. The people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be worshiping you in your kingdom when you return. We thank you that you've promised that you'll be with us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us, that you promise to walk with us every step of the way. And we thank you that you give us the encouragement that we're not alone that you have rescued others and that you're going to accomplish your purposes in this world. Lord, give us strength to persevere, to keep preaching the gospel, keep sharing with those around us and keep allowing your spirit to transform our hearts. In Christ's name I pray, amen.